following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. Well, friends, if you'll take your Bibles in hand and turn to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, we've been on a little three-week series through Psalm 51, and we're going to be closing it out today. We're going to be looking specifically at verses 13 through 19 today, the final verses here of this, this section, final seven here. But with that being said, I would like to start by just reading the entirety of Psalm 51. Each week we've kind of built upon it. We've read one section and then the two sections, and now we'll just read the entirety of the text. Friends, with great pleasure, I read the words of our living God. To the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Psalm 51 says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity And in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips. And my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, here we come to our end of Psalm 51 today. So we come to the close of this both 
beautiful and very convicting and God-glorifying psalm, I want to do as we did last week and take a few moments to kind of look at where we've been and build us towards where we're going today. We started week one with a short look into repentance. Verses one through six showed us that David's response to confrontation had been that of a need for repentance, a need for true change. Remember, Nathan had come to David and had called out his sin. David had taken the wife of one of his men, Bathsheba. She was pregnant. And in an attempt to cover it up, when Uriah had not done what he had hoped he would do, he had Uriah killed on the battlefield. And so this is David's response to that very confrontation of Nathan. As Nathan draws his attention to the reality of what he had done. Remember, David had had some time lapse between the confrontation and before, or since the the incident where he had gone in with Bathsheba and he had killed Uriah and now Nathan appears and at this very moment, David has probably moved on. It's probably on his mind. It probably weighs on him some, but he thinks to himself, well, no one has to know. As long as I don't bring it up, it'll never come up. And Nathan says, You are that man, the man that is stolen from another. You are the man who has done evil in the eyes of God. And so David cries out, have mercy on me, O God. In those first two verses of Psalm 51, we saw this real presence of sin. Have mercy on me, O God. Blot out my transgressions, wash me from my iniquities, cleanse me from my sins. In verses 3 and 4, we saw the pain of sin. As David says, I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. And he reminds us all that ultimately our sin is against the Almighty God. What a horrible place to be, right? And we're all there when we sin. We sin not just against one another, but against an Almighty God, a perfect and holy one. A one that is deserving of our perfection, and yet we can't do it. And so he cries out and says, Lord, the pain is unbearable. I know it. I know my transgressions. My sins are before me. Finally, he finishes out this section by recalling how profound his sin truly was. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. His sin was all he's known. Sure, the, maybe the sin of adultery and the sin of murder and the ways that he committed them were new. Sure, I'm, I'm sure David battled lust. I'm sure David battled anger. But what he had done was probably something he hadn't done before. And so he realizes just how profound the sin is. That everything he's known has been sin. He's lived in sin. He's dealt in sin. He's worked in sin. Sin has just been a part of his life. Even as the chosen one of God, this one that was going to be chosen to be the king, 
he had to acknowledge that sin was a part of who his very nature was and that he needed to battle that sin. The great reality that God desires truth inwardly. And at this time, David could say, I haven't been truthful. If anything, I've been utterly deceitful. Not just against myself, not just against the people, but before God. In last week's study of the text, we continued on as David had had sought out repentance and now he seeks renewal. In verses 7 and 9, David pleads for cleansing as he hearkens to the rituals of the temple. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Hyssop being used as a part of the ritual cleansings. He says, wash me and I'll be whiter, whiter than snow calls upon something that is so bright and brilliant. And he says, if you wash me, Lord, I'll be brighter than that. Purer than that. He asked God to hide his face from David's sin, to blot out the very iniquities of his sin, his very sinful nature. Then as he continues on, we see David's plea for renewal. Verse 10, he asks God to renew a right spirit within him. He asked that God not remove himself from David, but rather that God restore him to the joy of the salvation that comes through him. That he might uphold him with a willing spirit. And so we've seen that throughout Psalm 51, we've kind of been building the storyline. He's had this need for repentance, so he cries out for repentance. He then cries out for renewal. And then in our final section here, He cries out for restoration, to be restored into right relationship where he can worship rightly, where he can cry out to the Lord, not as one who is out to condemn, but as the one who is his savior. That he can be able to teach and share the truths of the God of his salvation, not as a hypocrite, but as one who has experienced just that a God who has saved him. As I said at the beginning of our study in this psalm, it is written in such a way that sinners can come to God through the psalm and pray it as a sort of confession of sin. For we, though we're not David, are much like him. And we can be saved. And yet we will still sin at times. We can be chosen and yet still fall short of the glory of God. This won't happen once. This won't happen twice, but it's ongoing. Our battle never ends. We're in this war against our own flesh, against evil, against temptations. So in so doing, as we battle, we find ourselves needing to repent once again seeking renewal that comes from God and God alone, then we are able to be restored into our service of him again, that we go out into the world and we say, look at the God of our salvation. Feast your eyes upon the God who died, who sent his son that he might die on a cross in our place for our sins. And so today as we look at our text, we're going to see this final stage, this restorative or restoration. And as we do, I invite you to see three major points that will help us to draw out from the text some of the depths here. 
We see that forgiveness leads to three areas. First, in uh, verse 13, forgiveness leads to proclamation. Second, in verses 14 and 15, forgiveness leads to praise. And finally, in verses 16 through 19, forgiveness leads to proper worship. So let us dive right in. Let's get into verse 13. He says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. In response to God's forgiveness, David says he will teach transgressors the very ways of God, the very ways of Yahweh. David is not saying, obviously, that he is not a sinner, but as he looks out and he sees, I'm a sinner and they're sinners. I've been saved and they need to be saved. God has forgiven me. They need his forgiveness too. And so you'll teach him the very ways of the very acts, the very conduct of who God is, his very character. What is the ways in which he's going to speak? David has been seeking the Lord's loyalty, his grace, his steadfast love, his abundant mercy. All of these things leading to the very forgiveness that is only found in God. Remember, he said earlier on in the text, he said, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, he says that he is a washing God. He's a cleansing God. He's a righteous God. He said, you are justified in your words, blameless in your judgments. He delights in truth. He's a God of truth. He's one that teaches wisdom. He's the one that creates He's the one that sustains. He's the one that is willing to uphold. He's the one that restores. And so David will go forth and he will teach all of these things, he says. I will teach transgressors. I'll teach fellow sinners your ways. And what does he say? And what will be the result of that teaching? What's going to come from it? He says, sinners will return to you. Friends, so many people in our world today seem to think that teaching of the word is no longer necessary. Hence why we have men who come up to the pulpit every Sunday and they walk up and they put a Bible under their arm and they talk for 20, 30, maybe 35, 40 minutes. Never once opening this. They just talk and they hope that that's good enough. They hope that that's all that's needed. And no, he says, I will teach transgressors your ways. How do we teach his ways but to open up the very word that he revealed himself in? How do we bring people to a knowledge of God except for to open up the very word in which he shows who he is? And the result will be, the result will be that sinners will return. He says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. The outcome of his teaching, the outcome of sharing what God has done will be that sinners will return. Like David was and like we all were at certain times, if we were believers here today, we'll turn back to God, repent and we'll believe. So forgiveness leads to proclamation. Forgiveness leads the man who has been saved to share this truth. I don't know how many of you remember when you were first believers, this joy that was overwhelming at times, this joy that just made you want to share it with everyone, 
This joy that made you so bold as to go out and to tell everyone, you'll never guess what's happened to me. You know why I don't do these things anymore? You know why I've completely changed? You know why everything seems to be new and different? Because I've been made new and different. Forgiveness leads to proclamation. Friends, some of the the challenge I think we face today is that we lose sight of the glories of forgiveness. We were forgiven once and we think, well, I've been forgiven and we just move on. Not refreshing our minds on the reality of what's been done. Not refreshing our minds on the fact that we are in desperate need of forgiveness day in and day out, hour by hour, minute by minute, second by second. If God chose, which he wouldn't because his word won't, he said it will, he won't do this, but if he so chose to take away his forgiveness, he would be right and just in so doing. And you'd stand under his wrath. And so, friends, it's so essential, it's so important that we acknowledge the forgiveness that has been given us in Christ. And that should lead us naturally to proclamation. We find new joy and new boldness and this new fire within us whenever we realize what forgiveness really means. It means that what we've seen thus far and what we'll continue to see, that God has had mercy on us that he, even though we know our transgressions, even though we know our sins, God has seen it fit to create in us a clean heart, to renew a right spirit within us, that he hasn't cast us away, but yet he's pulled us close, that he's restored us to his joy of his salvation, and that he upholds us now with a willing spirit. Friends, forgiveness leads to proclamation. Forgiveness, when we truly understand it, naturally means that we desire to cry out to all the peoples, Be forgiven. Hear and be forgiven. Not just out of a fear of what could come in hell, but out of just the dear necessity that our God is a God who is willing to send his son to die for us. We see in the news people that have saved one another and we rejoice in it and we look at them and we say you're a hero they received the key at the city right they the mayor gives them a key to the city they get plaques and awards and articles written about them and christ he came and he died and he saved he saved so many All the more we should be writing about him and speaking about him and proclaiming him on the rooftops and proclaiming him in the workplaces and proclaiming him in our families. Forgiveness leads to proclamation. David continues here as he looks at the ways in which forgiveness will naturally lead. It says he will lead to proclamation and then he turns and he says forgiveness leads to praise. He says, deliver me from my blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. 
Forgiveness leads to praise. He says, deliver me from my blood guiltiness. Deliver to be saved or to be released from. Blood guiltiness, this Hebrew word here literally translates to bloods, a plural, referring to shed blood or murder. David knew he was guilty before God for having murdered Uriah. And we stand guilty before God if we are outside of Christ for murder ourselves. And even as saved individuals, as we murder in our hearts with this anger that we hold, we stand before God and we say, deliver me from my blood guiltiness, O God. The address is made to the only one, the only one who can provide actual deliverance, the only one who can actually save, the only one who can bring about the renewal and the restoration that we so desire and that we so desperately need For he indeed is the God of salvation, as David says. He is the God who says, who saves people. Says, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And what's the natural response that will come from that? And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. My tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. David's response will be to share the righteousness of God. Cry out, ring out, to shout, but not just shouting for shouting's sake. No, he will shout that God is righteous. Righteousness, this way of being described is the very nature of who God is. He is righteous. It's a term that almost encompasses the entirety of who God is. We point to specific aspects of God's character at times. We say he is merciful. We say he is loving. We say he is just. We say that he is wrathful at times. We say he is caring, abundant in mercy. And a way that we kind of summarize all of that was we say he is righteous. David will have experienced this compassion, this mercy of the righteous God. The one who judges justly, as we saw in the previous verses. Remember, he had said, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. And so David will cry out to all who hear over the righteousness of God, this God who is righteous. He says, oh Lord, open my lips. Cries out that the Lord would open his lips. What an interesting phrase. It's almost as if his lips are sealed or glued shut right now. Well, are they? Well, no, obviously. I mean, he's been responding to Nathan and we can go on to believe it's not like he just stopped talking. That God had literally left him mute. It's definitely figurative speech here, but David knows that it's in forgiveness that his mouth will be opened. That praise can come forth. That right right now, before God, he stands just completely shut, completely mute and quiet before him because he's just waiting. Lord, Lord, have mercy. Lord, please forgive me. Lord, help me. Help me repent. Help me be renewed. Help restore me to the right place. It's like his mouth has been opened 
in forgiveness for a very specific purpose. He says, and my mouth will declare your praise. Forgiveness leads to praise. Open, oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Friends, when we experience true forgiveness, when we experience the forgiveness that comes from God, not only will we proclaim him that others might follow, but we will sing the praises of him, the God who saves his people, the God who restores a people to himself. And finally, forgiveness leads to proper worship. The final verses here, verses 16 through 19, he says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This final section here of the psalm is almost troublesome for, for many. There's been many arguments varying on how to understand this text. In fact, they align, though, with all of Scripture, as we will see throughout here. He says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it to you, or I would, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. So many have argued over these, just this one little line here. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. Some say that this puts David in a point of tension with Levitical law, found in Leviticus 1 through 7. We see that there's two types of sacrifice or two types of offerings found here. The sacrifice, which is probably pointing to peace offerings, found in Leviticus 3 and 7. Or the burnt offerings, as he goes on to say, found in Leviticus 1. And people say, well, if God does not delight in that according to David, then that must mean that he is opposed to the Levitical law. But we can rule that out pretty quickly based on the final verses of this very psalm. He says, then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings, whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. And so we can say that's not the case. This is not pitting him against Levitical law. David was a man under the law. And therefore he desired to honor God in the law because this is what God had put forth as the way in which they were to engage with him. This is how they engaged with the God who had saved them. The God who throughout the Old Testament reminds them of bringing them out of Egypt. And as they're in the desert, he says, this is how you will engage me. This is how you will be in relationship with me. This is how you will show that you are my people and I am your God. Some say David is going against the priestly role that would execute these very offerings. They throw this in with other passages like Psalm 50, verses 8 through 13, just the previous psalm. Isaiah 66, verses 1 through 4. Micah 6, 6 and 7. They argue that all these go against the priesthood of the Old Testament. But that's definitely not the case because, once again, David is a man under the law. He is not trying to 
overthrow the law. This is how he understands his relationship engagement with God. Just earlier, he uses the very, the very processes of the temple and the engagement of the temple to talk about being cleansed. He says, purge me with hyssop. Wash me. He wants to hear the joy and gladness and that joy and gladness being the worship in the temple. He has no desire to overthrow the priesthood. He has no desire to overthrow the law or the offerings or the sacrifices. No, we should understand this in this final sense. He's speaking in pure hyperbole. These exaggerated statements to get the very point across that God is not looking for sacrifice out of mere sacrifice. David acknowledges that he cannot just bring the guilt offering as we discussed earlier. Even if he could, this was not the answer. God was not going to just be pleased with him saying, here you go, God, is that good enough for you? Here, I I came today, is that enough? Does that make you feel better? Are we right now that I brought a bowl before you? Are we right now that a burnt offering was made for me? No, God is looking for more than mere sacrifice. The sacrifices were not just a, it was a part of the law and it was a part of their engagement and it was a part of the reality of the death that needed to occur because these people were allowed to continue living. It was a part of this Levitical relationship, this law-based relationship. But the reality was is that it wasn't just mere sacrifice. It wasn't just chopping off body parts and burning them on the altar. It wasn't just blood being spilt out onto the altar before God. No, there was something more. Something deeper, something within, and something that would be described as far more painful. He says, The sacrifices of God, what are they? A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. It's a broken and contrite heart that God will not despise. He says, The sacrifices of God, right? What's, a, what's pleasing and acceptable to God? What would be fitting or worthy of our worship to God? And he says, a heart that is broken, a spirit that is broken. It's not just coming with the bull. It's not just coming with the lamb. It's not just coming with the dove. It's not just the weed offerings. It's not just that. It's because you're coming, because you realize You're desperately in need of the salvation that God offers. It's a right response to the God who pulled you out of Egypt. The God who saved his people after their enslavement in Egypt. The one who in his mighty works had brought them into the wilderness and brought them to the promised land. He says, this is how you engage me with a heart that just bows before me because of what I've already shown you. And the only right response then is to say, Lord, take it all. I want to give you everything. The reason that all the animals were perfect was not because there was a piece of it being about the righteousness of God, but also because it was saying, God, I don't care what it is. You take it. It's yours. It's not mine. I I don't want the perfect one. I'll take the blemished one. I want you to have everything. Because you, God, are the one who pulled us out of Egypt. You, God, are the one who sustained us in the wilderness. You are the one who brought us into the promised land that wiped out all the people that protected us in battle. 
a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart is what God desires. Alan Ross in his commentary rightly mentions, this is the only um, damaged offering that an Israelite could ever bring. It's the only damaged offering that Israelite was allowed to bring. Every animal had to be perfect. But the heart of a sinner, the heart of the Israelites, had to be broken and contrite, crushed. God desires to see the sinner understanding his sin for what it really was. He desires that the weight of the pain of his sin brings him crushed and broken to the throne of God, where God can then just pour out his love and restore him. Now, God is not a sadist. Doesn't enjoy seeing people suffering and pain. He doesn't look upon the people and see them and say, I wanted to see you hurt. No, he is a God that desires his chosen people turn from their sin because he knows what's best for them. Being made right through the forgiveness that only he can give. It's this broken and contrite heart that God will not despise. David knows that this heart is what God will truly accept. Not only will he not despise it or turn away from it, but God will joyfully welcome it. He'll say, come to me, child. Come to me. If David attempted to come without this, God would rightfully turn him away. But with a broken and contrite heart, God accepts him. And David then turns his gaze upon the people of Israel. In these final two verses, he says, Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Some have argued that these last two verses were additions later on to the text, saying they don't seem to fit the psalm. They argue they must have been added in the exilic or the post-exilic period, saying that they are speaking of a restoration of Israel in Jerusalem so that sacrifices could be offered again in the temple. And while it seems feasible that this could be the case, it does seem to fit well with the text that David did indeed write these and intended these. Though it's a rapid change from the very personal level he was looking upon, it's a very fitting one to place in here. So frequently our world teaches that our issues are our issues alone. And we don't have to worry as long as it doesn't affect anybody else. Just go on living your life. But sadly, they do affect others. David acknowledges that very fact as he prays for the people. Our world just would say, well, as long as you're not hurting anyone, you can do whatever you want. You can do whatever you want. But that's not the case. Our sin impacts each other. Our sin impacts the world around us. Our sin shapes the very ways in which we engage our world around us. When we're angry, when we're living in this anger, this sin, how do we interact with one another? In a very different light than whenever we are in a heart that has acknowledged the forgiveness of God. Our sin impacts others. And so David seeks that the people of Israel prosper. 
It says, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Zion, speaking of the people of Jerusalem on Mount Zion. In the midst of David's sin, he knows that if God is not merciful to him, it will impact all of the people of Israel. All those under David's reign. David desires to see both himself and the people experience the good pleasure of God. And how is he to do that? He says, build up the walls of Jerusalem. This could be taken in a couple senses. First, it could be that he's talking about physical, literal building of walls. A sense in which the nation is protected. Though God would not do the physical work, he would enable a people to build up and strengthen this protection, this physical protection of Jerusalem. However, the issue with this very view is that the national defense was not the concern of David in this psalm. Rather, it's the defense against sin. It's this defense against the wrongdoings that he had just committed. It's ensuring that pure worship is brought before the Lord. Others say that this is speaking more in the sense of God's divine favor, his, his protection over the people. Speak to God's protecting the nation both morally and spiritually. I agree with this as David is concerned with the spiritual well-being of his people. Especially as he deals with his own sin, as he looks upon his own sin and he thinks about what could that mean. He looks upon his people and he says, Lord, protect them. Protect them from my own wrongdoing. Protect them from their own wrongdoings. And what is going to be the result of that? He says, then you will delight in right sacrifices. He's not concerned so much with the building up of a nation, with strengthening its defenses. But he's asking that they be, as he said earlier, upheld with a willing spirit. That then they will be able to bring before him right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Bowls will be offered on the altar. What is the natural result of God's protection, the spiritual well-being of his people? They will offer the right sacrifice before him. Remember, David had no desire to tear down or contradict the law or the sacrificial systems, but rather he desires that the people of God come before him with the proper heart so that they may delight in the sacrifices and offerings being made. God desires not compulsion, but willing offerings as a desire to bring him glory for the God that he is, the God that has done the work that he has done. He alone can do. And so we see that forgiveness leads to proclamation. Forgiveness leads to praise and forgiveness leads to proper worship. So as we close today, as we finish out this last section of Psalm 51, I want to leave you with just a few thoughts. You ask, what are we to do? How do I, what do I do from Psalm 51? And I just want to pluck out some truths that we can hold on to. Some things that when you think of Psalm 51, I hope remind you of the content of it, help you to be reminded of the importance of it, help you as you pray through it at times. And this is not to be an exhaustive list. I'm only going to give you three points, so I can't give you an exhaustive list. I didn't want to stay here for hundreds of points. But there's 
just a few things that I think are worth pulling forward for you. There's some general themes that you can chew on that can soak deep within your souls and that will bring you into deeper love for God that will lead to this restoration, that forgiveness, which will bring you proclamation, praise, and proper worship. First, from Psalm 51, we see that we, like David, are sinners. We saw this all throughout the text, but I want to just draw your minds quickly back to verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God. Why? Because of verse 3, he says, For I know my transgressions and my sins are ever before me. All of us are sinners, as Romans 3 tells us, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are sinful people who have been sinners since the very beginning, as verse 5 teaches, right? As verse 5 shows us, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And yet again, in verse 14, we saw today, David cries out, Deliver me from blood guiltiness. All these things are cries that we can join in him, join in with him, bringing before the Father. So the first thing, we are sinners. Second, we see the very character of who God is throughout this passage. Verse 1, God possesses steadfast love, abundant mercy. It's who he is. It's his very character. He is the only one who can give mercy. He's the only one who can cleanse a sinner like us. He is just, and therefore he is justified in his words and blameless in his judgments. Everything he does, including salvation and condemnation, are perfect and right. God in his very nature is right. God delights in truth because he is truth. He desires that people come to him with a broken and contrite heart. He desires the best for his people. You would think the best would be that we'd just always feel good. We'd always feel right. He says, no, the best for you is that you're broken and you're contrite. That you're crushed under the weight of sin and that you turn that I might save you. Because I am a God of salvation. We see the very character of God in this passage. And third and final, based on who we are, sinners, who God is, righteous, we come before God, of the God of our salvation, and we cry out with David, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. As we come to God with truly broken hearts, broken spirits, contrite hearts, we know that our God will not despise this. And by the salvation that comes from God through his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, we can then join in saying, I will teach transgressors your ways. And by your mercy, sinners will return to you. So we have three things here that I hope we can walk away with as we remember this beautiful, beautiful psalm. Our sin, a perfect, holy God, and the salvation that restores us to right relationship with him. That we might be active in our service for him, for his glory. Friends, today is the day. See your sin for what it is. A wicked rebellion against God. An affront against God's very grace and mercy. 
See who God is. Holy, perfect, merciful, and righteous. Then repent and believe in the only means of salvation. The Lord Jesus Christ. The one who died as a propitiation for sin. That you might be saved. Join me in prayer as we close.